Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Hello and welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. More geniuses than usual even this week because (laughs) Hank's not here. Joining us this week is editorial assistant Deboki Chakravarti. Deboki, how are you? I'm good. I'm feeling so genius. Good. That's important for you to feel because it's basically your job to be really smart. Deboki, what's your catchphrase? Old gym bags. Oh. Mm, disgusting. <laughs> also joining me, as always, not a special guest, Stefan Chin. Hey. Stefan, I'm going to ask you a Hank-type question. Yeah. What is your favorite wattage of light bulb? Favorite wattage of <laughs> light bulb? Uh-huh. You know, a, a good old 60 watt is pretty good. Oh, you have one. Okay. I mean, that's a normal, <laughs> that's just like your standard bulb. And then you, you, if you, you know, you put it on a dimmer, you dim it down, you get a nice warm glow. I, I like the new LED bulbs. I don't know. The wattage doesn't really matter as much on those. Here's a question for you. What about color warmth? Does that matter to you? Most of the time, I prefer daylight. I, I replace all my bulbs with daylight bulbs. What a, for a surprisingly fertile question for Stefan. Stefan, what's your tagline? Or your catchphrase? What are they called? Catchphrase? Catchline. Okay, catchline. What's your catchline? <laughs> uh, Jumpin' Jehoshaphidgets. Also joining us, as always, is Sari Riley. Hello. Sari, what's your catchline? Grasshopper stew. Oh, stew of the future. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's accurate. I am, by the way, Sam Schultz, and my catchphrase is 
I'm gone fishing. Every week on Tangents, we get together and try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations with the group, we will not be good at that. So if the rest of the team deems a tangent unworthy, we will force you to give up one of your sandbucks. So tangent with care. And now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week. <laughs> From Sari. Words are weird if you think about it. With writing and speaking and signing to fit into our brains, our mouths, our tongues, gestures with hands, or air from our lungs. Sounds and or signs, both little and small, make up every language, slang, and drawl. They help us argue. They invite us to play and say, way hey on a sleigh or crochet away. <laughs> Most importantly here, because we're a podcast, they let answers be pondered and questions be asked. Jokes to be told to a laugh or a groan. Ideas from us straight into your home. So when you have so many linguistic choices, thank you for listening to our English-speaking, sometimes science-y, definitely goofy, not quite pristine for radio voices. Wow. <laughs> you turned it into an advertisement for us. <laughs> yep. Yes. Really just like coming back to the brand. <laughs> so this week's topic is language, which I admit when we picked it, I was kind of like, what the heck? But there's tons of science on language. So it was okay. Mm -hmm. Sari and Deboki. What is language? There are a few key things that distinguish a language from other ways of communicating. So one is this thing called duality of patterning. And so language exists at form and combinations of form. So there's like your words or letters or like the pieces that make things that on their own don't mean anything. Like without us assigning like rain is the wet thing that falls from the sky. Rain doesn't mean anything. But mm -hmm. there's combinations of those things where we're like, rain is falling from the sky, that we know what rain is. So that is a characteristic of language. And then we can use languages to talk about things that happened in the past or will happen in the future or all these like hypothetical cases. And so if we can only use a communication system to talk about things right here, right now, then that isn't considered a language. What? Mm -hmm. So if you're Who like... Makes that, oh. what? Why is that a rule? I don't understand that. I think it's to distinguish what animals do, a lot, a lot oh. of cases from other... Or yeah. It's to distinguish what non-human animals do from yeah. human language. Huh. Uh, because if a dog barks, it's like, oh, there's a squirrel, or oh, there's a mailman. But they can't bark about something in the future or in the past. Mm -hmm. All right, no, I'm going to push back on that because they can because they can be like they can use body language to be like I would love to go for a walk because mm -hmm. they know that they've been on walks before. But they can't be like, remember when we went on a walk yesterday? Like mm. it's not necessarily about them like having a sense of time. I think I think it's like a, they can't communicate that sense of time. Like it's all very present. If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> like they can bring you a thing from the walk yesterday and be like, here is that thing. But they can't communicate with you just sitting there on the ground through barks or body language. Remember when I found that really stinky rock? Uh, okay. <laughs> and then another characteristic is we can use language to talk about language, which is called reflexivity. So we can use language to be like, we are talking right now. And when mm -hmm. a bird is singing... It is not like, I am singing right now, to our knowledge. So does anything besides people have language? Like, is a computer language even a language? Or I mean, I guess it is, because they can do all those things you said. Mm -hmm. So is it just people and computers? That's it? Definitely feels like we've stacked the definition in our favor here. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's probably true. I think we have looked at humans being like, what we're doing is language. And then we build the definition around that. Where does the word language come from? It comes from the Latin word lingua for tongue, which also means speech or language. And then it's just pretty much adapted from there. If you want to learn more about languages, we are releasing now, as of September 2020, a series on the YouTube channel Crash Course about linguistics. It's where I got a lot of this definition information from, is from working on Crash Course Linguistics. What about, okay, so what if like an ant makes a smell and the smell is like, hey, don't go this way. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a big spider will eat your ass. Is that language? He's reminding you of a spider going to eat your ass. So this idea of like language being used to communicate things like far from you temporally or spatially, like so that's called displacement, right? And there are animals that can like hint at that, it seems like. So like there are honeybees that like waggle around to like say where mm-hmm. there's a patch or something like that. So I think there's just a sense of just like how limited it is compared to what we can communicate. I think that's probably part of it. But again, we could just be like really full of ourselves and just be like, we can say things are super, super far from us. Hmm. So what you're saying is I I had a pretty smart idea. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, anyway, now it's time for... One of our panelists has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of them is real. The other three panelists have to figure out, either by deduction or wild guess, which is the true fact. And if they do, they get a sandbook. If we are all tricked, then Deboki gets a bunch of sandbooks because it is Deboki's turn to do truth or fail. Yes. Uh, Like we were just saying... Whether or not animals have language is an ongoing question, but even if they don't have language, they're still communicating using things like vocalizations and sounds. And at times, the sounds they use can follow patterns and behaviors seen in human languages. Of course, there is no more important time for good communication than when you're trying to find a mate. The following are three descriptions of animal vocalization patterns in mating inspired by actual patterns and behaviors that have been described in our own of language, but only one of them is true. Which is it? Fact number one, the longer a text, the more unique words it's likely to have, which is great if you want to show off your vocabulary. That's what the male mustached bat does to demonstrate their prowess over the 33 types of sounds or syllables they can make, serenading their female counterparts with long phrases to integrate as many of those sounds as possible. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Fact number two, the words we use most frequently tend to also be the shortest words. Male African penguins employ this pattern when honking to grab the attention of female penguins during mating season, emitting their shortest honks most frequently in order to be noticed amid the crowd of other honks. Oh, that's annoying. (laughs) And fact number three, people on speed dates are more likely to end up on another date with someone when their language style matches, which is something we have in common with black-tailed prairie dogs. While flirting from their respective burrows, female prairie dogs are more likely to invite over males whose mating calls resemble their own. So... The choices we have are the male mustached bat uses long phrases with as many sounds as possible to impress potential mates. Number two, male African penguins use short, frequent honks in order to be noticed by potential mates. Or number three, black-tailed prairie dogs look for mating calls similar to their own and are more likely to fall for prairie dogs with similar calls to their own. Mm -hmm. 
that seems like you might run into a, a little bit of a family incident. <laughs> I think it seems plausible. Animals are weird, and I don't know what voices are linked to. Like, it could be behavioral, but it could be, like, a, a demonstration of health or something like that. Or, yeah, mm. or, like, similar other biological things where it's like, we're going to be mm-hmm. compatible in our shared burrow because we can talk <laughs> to each other and communicate well. Oh, okay. Maybe that makes sense. That's too cute for nature. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these are prairie dogs. They're pretty cute. (laughs) That's true. So bats have language, like bats have distinct words they can say to each other. They have distinct sounds that they can make. This is like a dude with a mustache coming up with elaborate (laughs) poetry and reading it. Oh, poetry. These just sound like pickup lines to me. No, it sounds like you got you go up to somebody and you recite every single word that you can remember. <laughs> like, look at my vocabulary. Male African penguins use short, frequent honks in order to be noticed. This sounds extremely likely to me. This one feels like a lie to me because short honks, I feel like, would get drowned out by long honks. Like you'd have some long, loud honker who would just who would just drown out all the little short honkers. And then he'd be the one that would get all the, the penguin ladies. Okay, imagine, let's put this in terms that Stefan can understand. Imagine yeah, someone's honking their horn loud and long, and then someone else is going beep, 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 beep. Which one would you notice? I am more drawn to the long honk, to be honest. Okay, well, I think we have to make our choices. And I am going to pick the penguin one. Oh. I think Stefan's being contrarian. No. I'm going to pick the prairie dogs. I think it's weird, and I think I gotta go weird. I'll pick the penguins, too. I don't <laughs> like it. I don't like any of these. But one of them's true. All right, before Deboki tells us the answer, go to twitter.com slash tangents where there will be a poll. You can vote for which one you think is most likely to be true. Pause the show, but please remember to come back and listen to it. Uh, and you pause it now. Okay, are you back, Deboki? <laughs> What's the answer? It's the penguins. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Okay. Penguin vocalizations, it turns out, are like pretty incredible. They actually have like a lot of their own identity encoded in the sounds that they're making. Mm. So like you can figure out like there's acoustic information in there to figure out who mm. they are. So the African penguin is known as the jackass penguin mm. um, because it makes a donkey-like braying sound. So it's like, ah, uh, ah. Uh, Ah, it like turns its head up, it, like has this whole thing, and it's just like making this donkey like sound. Like that's the name is appropriate. Yeah, and you can actually break up that braying sound into different syllables. So it starts with a series of shorter syllables followed by longer syllables. This sets the African penguin apart from other penguins, um, like the king penguin, um, which makes these really repetitive sounds um, that contain a lot more redundant information Mm. about who they are. Um, And that's partly because they're living in Antarctica. So there's a lot of wind and it's hard to see and everyone's close together. So having a lot of redundant information inside of a single syllable makes a lot of sense for them. But because African penguins are living in like a more mild climate, um, they they don't necessarily do that. So they don't have that same redundancy built into any individual syllable, um, but they still need to be found. So during mating, they'll repeat these shorter syllables more frequently um, to help like kind of stand out. So researchers studying the vocalizations of African penguins living in zoos found that these patterns were consistent with what's called Zipf's law of brevity, which says that our most frequently used words Mm. like the, of, or is are also 
the shortest. There's some other um, linguistic laws associated with human languages that these vocalizations also fit in with. Um, so I think this was like the the first evidence for these laws in a non-primate species. Can the penguins themselves hear the sounds and and glean information about the individual? It's not just something we can do? No, it's, so it's for the other penguins. So like with, okay. with the penguins, um, the ones that are living in Antarctica, apparently all you need is like a third of the syllable to be able to like identify oh. which penguin it is, which is like pretty remarkable. And it's like why they have that kind of redundant nature. Like they still are repeating that sound. And within that sound, there is like excess information. Was there any truth to the others? Yes. So the mustache bat is actually capable of 33 different types of sounds or syllables, and they can string them together in like their own syntax. I have not found any proof that they <laughs> like to create poetry out of it. Wow. Um, but there are the female horseshoe bat um, is documented to prefer mating with um, bats who have higher frequency echolocation calls. Mm. And then the last fact. So there is like actual studies, like a psychologist looked at people who were going on speed dates and saw like they were more likely to end up on a date with someone if their language styles match. Um, so that means like you use different parts of speech in similar ways and at like similar rates. Um, and so they like attributed this to like a tendency where if we're like genuinely interested in a conversation with someone, like not even like a romantic interest, I think just like generally interested, mm -hmm. we'll be more likely to like match language styles even if we're not aware of it. But sadly, this is not a thing that the prairie dogs do. They do have like an extensive call repertoire. Um, but what the mating calls, they, they're made up of sets of two to 25 barks and there are some pauses between each set, but they, they just make these sounds at like the burrow, like either right before or right after mating. They don't do it, I think, to like attract mates. So they've already, they've already got cool. the mate and then they start yipping. That's what it sounds like. Weirdly, apparently this call sounds a lot like the same calls that they make when there's a predator, but only if you're like really untrained, like prairie dogs have no problem like telling right. the two apart, but just high adrenaline either way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up, we're going to take a short break and then it's time for the fact off. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills. I said it before and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast as aspersions, dispersions. Yeah. aspersions. One of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm -hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> you want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah. That bean's yeah. not going to grow if there's a constant drain on the, on the bean, bean. that <laughs> is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond 
I mean beans. And beyond subscription canceling, <laughs> Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users, and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, more grow. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use you- that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans, cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Factor, whose ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Stress is stressful. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Life just goes and goes, and it doesn't ever stop going. There's always something else to do. And one of those things is a very important thing called eating dinner. To eat dinner, one must pick out what they want to eat and then go to the grocery store and then buy the stuff and then chop the stuff and do other things to the stuff. You have to heat the stuff and put it in water. And then afterwards, you have to take the things that you heated it in and they're gross and you have to make them clean again. Meanwhile, life is still happening that all oh, all oh, that's building up around you. Oh, this is terrifying. I'm so, <laughs> I never want to cook again. <laughs> You're right, Factor Ad. I don't. I don't want to have this happen. This is unacceptable. Sometimes, uh, parentheses, all the time, uh, you just don't have the time or the energy for meal planning on top of everything else going on in your life. So thankfully, Factor is here to help. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon come mealtime. You can get chef-crafted meals that are better for you and better tasting than takeout delivered right to your door. Ready to heat and ready to eat. No prep, no mess, no sink full of dishes, no stress. We're kicking stress out the door in 2024, and I certainly hope that's true for me. Heck yeah, Factor. <laughs> Kick my stress. Right out the door. <laughs> I'm going to get a chest freezer just for these meals. <laughs> oh, you're going to need one because they have over 35 meals to choose from. Flexible ordering options, add-ons, smoothies. Factor offers all sorts of fast, simple solutions when you're too busy to cook. Banish your stress, even if it's just for like one hour while you're eating dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash tangents50 and use code tangents50 to get 50% off. That's code tangents50 at factormeals.com slash tangents50 to get 50% off. And we're back. Hello. Here are the scores so far. Sari has one. Daboki has one. Sam has one. <laughs> Stefan has one. Ooh, it's yeah. really working out well for all yeah. of us. But now, either me or Stefan will pull ahead because we are going to face off in the fact off. Two panelists, me and Stefan, bring science facts to present to Daboki and Sari in an attempt to blow their minds. The presentees each have a sandbook to award to the fact they like the most. And to figure out who's going to go first, we're going to be asked a trivia question by somebody. According to the 2020 edition of Ethnologue, Languages of the World, 
How many recognized living languages are there? I'll say 2,000. Oh, I'll say 40,000. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) The answer is 7,117. So That's a lot. Seven was way closer. Seven was way closer. You (laughs) overshot, Sam. Cool. Well, Sam, why don't you go first? Oh, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds fine to me, Stefan. People spend countless hours on social media using language to share their opinions, jokes, and basically anything that happens in their lives. But researchers have potentially found a way to use what people don't say on their social media accounts for potentially life-saving purposes. So in a study published earlier in 2020, researchers got permission to look at Facebook posts of about 3,000 patients who were in the hospital after an emergency visit, so like an unplanned visit to the hospital. And they applied machine learning to their Facebook posts to sift through all of them. And what they found was that most patients' languages changed significantly as the date of their emergency hospital visit got closer. So patients started using less like fun words, like talking about vacations or like playing sports and stuff like that, or words relating to leisure. So they used like the word nap less as one specific one that they that they said in the paper. And they were way less likely to use informal language and alternate spellings of words. So like they stopped using like just the letter U and they would type Y-O-U and they stopped using internet slang like LOL. And instead they started posting more about their families or they talked more about not feeling very well And they generally used more like depressed and anxious language. So essentially, these people had no idea that they were about to go to the hospital or like the emergency room. But their general sense of like internal unease was seeping out into their social media presence and making them talk less about fun stuff. So the researchers propose that in kind of like a minority report sort of situation, we could apply machine learning to people's social media accounts and then skim the posts that like everybody makes and set up a system that would reach out to people who started to talk less about fun and more about not feeling so good. And so they could get preventative care instead of having to go to the emergency room. The same team did another study where they used machine learning to detect depression in people. So it was people who had already been diagnosed with depression and then they applied machine learning to their posts and they figured out that they were depressed three months before the person went to get checked out for having depression so it's kind of like robocop but it's like robo doctor or like robo therapist (laughs) and i don't know if it's a good or a bad thing if it could be shown to have a very very high level of predictive accuracy i feel like some like it could be useful for a lot of things, but I worry about, like, especially with the depression thing, like sort of yeah. putting people in a frame of mind where they're like, oh, I now I have I, I, this machine said I had depression. So, sorry, for the emergency room stuff, it was just like people had just gone to the emergency room. Oh, yeah. Was, they didn't know that they were going to go to the emergency room before they were typing. And it was like Facebook. anything, like it could have been a heart attack, a car accident, like anything. Well, no, not car accident. It was like people who had been there for sickness-related reasons and not accident-related reasons. Two of the examples I had in the paper were people who were there for pregnancy-related issues and people who were there for, like, heart attack-related issues. Mm. So it kind of runs a gamut. And it also talked about how people reach out to family more often when they're not feeling well or, like, they want, they seek out community more. Yeah. So it's based in, like, a non-internet thing, too, of just, like, trying to feel like you're not alone. 
the worse you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess the question is like one way or the other, if we want things to be able to pry into our lives so much, like programs to pry into our lives so much that they do something about that or or not. Mm-hmm. And it's hard because it's like health is really complicated. But maybe Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have to like have a big monitor that tells him how sick everybody on Facebook is. Or... <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that I would want someone monitoring me in that way, yeah. but that's also easy to say when you're like, yeah, everything's okay right now. But totally. if I had like a big health issue, would I be like, oh yeah, actually three months ago I made a Facebook post that could have warned you about, I mean, I never yeah. post to Facebook, so I feel like yeah, yeah. that would be the warning <laughs> sign, but like. Well, part of your, your healthcare plan will be mandatory posting to Facebook. <laughs> All right, Stephanie, you want to tell us your, your facts? Sure. The paper that I found was looking at potential language issues that would happen on a space voyage that was multi-generational. So like if you were sending a ship to go colonize another planet, it would probably take us hundreds, maybe thousands of years to get there. So this is all very speculative, but it's interesting and lets us look <laughs> at like how languages diverge. And I thought it was cool because like, like language is not the thing that you think about when you're like the dangers of space travel, but it's like, it's a thing because languages can change pretty quickly. And so in the paper they present, like there's two examples of like comparing Polynesian languages, which would be more like the spaceship example versus Malagasy, which is the language on on Madagascar, um, which is also in the same family. It's kind of a cousin of Polynesian. Theoretically, there's like a a proto-Polynesian language that's the parent to all of this. And then over a a period of a couple thousand years, they settled various Pacific islands and they did trade a bit with each other, but otherwise they were fairly isolated. And so like Polynesian languages, like each community sort of developed on their own. And these days, I think there's about there's about 40 Polynesian languages contrasted with Malagasy, which on Madagascar, very close to Africa. And so the language there borrowed features from the local African languages and ended up with like including those features. And that's like a unique thing that you don't see in other languages in the same family. Going to like multi-generational space mission, like the idea being that like in the Polynesian example, by the time like this ship has been in isolation for hundreds of years and reaches its destination, that would be enough time for the language to have completely diverged from like, let's say they start with English, like they're, they're speaking some version of English, but it's probably not English anymore. And additionally, like English back on Earth is also changing different in different ways at the same time. So that increases the amount of divergence. And then there are different factors that it can affect how quickly languages change. So like compulsory education is a thing that tends to slow it down because like you're teaching kids these prescriptive rules of like how to use the language. And so that tends to like push them more towards converging. But that tends to slow down the change in written language but like local dialects or the things that people speak on a day-to-day basis still change pretty quickly. And children are sort of the key driver of change because they will learn the language from school and then they like tweak it. They learn some cool slang on TikTok, whatever. And then as the older (laughs) generation is dying out, like those changes become a part of the language. And they point out that if you're like hundreds of light years away, any communication with Earth would take many years to like go back and forth. And so at some point you're functionally isolated from earth anyways, 
but you still might teach a version of like English that existed when you launched so that, you know, the, the descendants can read the manuals that came with the ship or like, or there could be like some rituals, like you have some pledge of allegiance or something that you say, but you, you say it in 2020 English, whereas nobody actually speaks that language anymore. And then if we send future ships to the same planet, it will go through that same process. And so when they get to the new planet, they'll have a whole different language that's completely separate from what's back on Earth and what's on the the newly colonized planet. And so you'd probably have to have some sort of like fossilized, like locked in old version of something that everyone could speak just so that there wouldn't be a language barrier. And then the other thing that affects it is the fact that like we've become so interconnected because we have like quick telecommunications and just like planes, people have become less isolated on Earth, which also slows language divergence. And in some cases, this promotes people converging towards one national dialect. And then in other cases, people end up diverging more and like because they see their local dialect as a a way to signal their identity. It's a way to stand out in a very homogenized culture. And so that could happen too if the crew is of the crew of the spaceship is large enough. They were hypothesizing that the different like jobs on the ship could stratify and people could develop like, well, this is engine bay language, like, because you need to signify your like socioeconomic status on the ship or something. This is not the thing that you think about when you think about the the difficulties of interstellar travel. I guess if we had a warp drive, we'd be fine. But, you know. But it's like that that happens like all the time on Twitter anyway. It's like I feel like I'm always trying to figure out what the hell people are talking about. (laughs) And if I fell asleep for a thousand years and woke up, then I would just there'd be no way. Yeah. I like the idea that like you'd be communicating with like Earth and already like you're you're screwed by time just like in general but also like you're sending letters like in old english yeah, to them yeah. and like you'd be saying yolo and stuff i really want yolo to be like the si- the, the sign off that gets locked in <laughs> sign off this for- will never <laughs> change and i never thought about how much of like when people lived without the internet it must have been a mess to like go to a different community and try to talk to people or like not to mention other languages but just like across a mountain that you've never been across. In in different contexts, we designate like, I think they call it lingua franca, as like there's a, there's a specific language that everyone agrees on, like we're going to use this language for this thing. So I think French and Chinese were used for diplomacy at a certain point. In international aviation these days, um, English is the common language, so all pilots learn English so that yeah. no matter what crew you're on, you can communicate with every everyone on board that's interesting terry and deboki are you ready to pick which fact you liked more yeah it's hard (laughs) but yes three two one stefan Stefan. whoa (laughs) snap that means stefan's in first place i think oh rats i should yeah yeah (laughs) keep stefan out of there you dummy all right now it's time to ask the science couch where we ask listener questions to our couch of finely honed scientific minds and this week's question is from Wei Han Lim. What would a language with maximum efficiency look like? I don't even really understand <laughs> what this means. And I think that's a good place to start. It's like, <laughs> okay. what, what does an efficient language look like to you? And so what my brain jumps to first is 
how can you pack the most information? So like language is a, is a method of transmitting information into the shortest amount of time or syllables or something like that. Like if I could make a blah noise and then you could understand like <laughs> I'm eating chicken for dinner from that, then that would be like a very efficient language. So while I was looking up ways to define language efficiency, the more I looked, the more confused I was. I think that's normal. I think that is actually kind of the point is that it's actually really difficult to define efficiency in language. Efficiency in general, obviously, you can cut like, like language itself. You can come up with the definition for it and then see what fits those definitions. So there are, you know, there are examples of studies where people have like measured the time it takes to read a certain passage in different languages um, and seeing, you know, like how many syllables there are and stuff like that for different languages. And like, I in, in those studies, they found, like, the English language, I think, was, like, more information dense than, like, a language like Japanese. But, like, because of the speed of being able to speak one versus the other, like, it kind of seems like a lot of things even out. Sorry, did you read that study? Like, I'm trying to remember if that was actually the takeaway. Yeah, they found after studying 17 languages and, like, a lot of quantitative methods on them. So, small fraction of the 7,000, but generally that languages with more syllables are spoken faster than the languages with fewer syllables. So you make up the time mm-hmm. by like, if you have to have more syllables to uh. convey your information, you like get those out a lot faster mm-hmm. than if you have fewer syllables, like in English, maybe to, to convey information, we speak slower than someone who would speak in Japanese or Spanish or, or something like that. So do they even out to the same amount of information, basically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah, one study was like, 39 bits per second. And not yeah. really, they like translate it into computer yeah. type information. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one last thing I looked into for this question is, is sort of related to that, but computer languages where we have other ways of measuring efficiency. So like particularly energy use, like how, oh. how much energy does it take for a computer to process a certain <laughs> thing written in a certain language? People have done a little bit of experimentation on these kind of things. Huh. And the biggest difference is that compiled languages tend to be more energy efficient and running faster, whereas interpreted languages are are slower and, and more energy consuming. And hmm. those, those are like differences in how the target machine that you are programming is reading the program essentially. And like whether or not in a compiled language to my understanding, the machine directly translates the program. And in an interpreted language, there's something else. There's an interpreter program mm-hmm. that is like a middleman between the program mm-hmm. and the machine. So if you pick a language that is more directly talking to the computer, then it is more efficient, mm-hmm. which which makes sense logically yeah. to me. But I haven't looked at an array of these different languages. It's possible that it's much easier for humans to write in an interpreted languages yeah. because... It'll mimic English more so we can we can understand it more rather than talking closer to how a computer can understand. If you want to ask the Science Couch, follow us at SciShow Tangents, where we'll tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to Fergana340, Rebecca underscore Rebecca4, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions for this episode. So final scores for everybody. Sarah, you have one point. Deboki, you have one point. Sam, you have one point. I Stephanie, you have three freaking up. points. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, and that means that Sari has 69 points. Hank has 61 points. He's not here. It doesn't matter. Sam has 64 points. Kind of sad and pathetic. Seven has 70 points. 
one point in the lead. I'm ready for <laughs> Stefan Bucks. Let's go. Taboki, thank you so much for being with us. Is there anything that you'd like to plug? Watch Journey to the Microcosmos and Crash Course Organic Chemistry. That sounds like a good idea to me for people to do. <laughs> if you like the show and want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. First, leave us a review wherever you listen. It's super helpful and it makes us feel good. So do that. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from the episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about us. us. That was a very gentle was, nice yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I've been Sam Schultz. I've been Stefan Chin. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Deboki Chakraverti. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroka Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paola Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakrabarty. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. One more thing. There are a lot of stories about how the bread called pumpernickel got that name, but the most likely explanation, according to linguist Ben Zimmer, is that pumpernickel is made up of two old German words, pumpern for fart and nickel for devil or <laughs> goblin, which means that pumpernickel loosely translates to farting devil, a testament to the difficulty of digesting it. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I've ever eaten pumpernickel bread. I'm not sure if I want to. <laughs> We're all isolated. So That's if, true. You know, if any time yeah. you need to become mm-hmm. a farting this devil, is now is the time. Yeah, you got to eat all your stinky foods now. <laughs> Get them out of the way. Yep. You can have as bad a breath as you want and as stinky a farts as you want. <laughs> <laughs>